One of the many new things that's come out of this coronavirus pandemic is new vocabulary. Essential frontline workers. Only essential businesses will be functioning. The checkout line now part of the front line. Essential workers. It's not a term that rolled off the tongue before the pandemic, but now it's everywhere. If you see a delivery guy or a store clerk on your brief forays out from home, tell them thank you. Even for all the nurses and the doctors that are helping all the people that are sick and dying in the hospital. We clap for them. We call them heroes. We know now that society can't run without them. But it's been months, and the pressure to get the economy going again is growing. At the same time, now that lockdowns are lifting, the benefits that those essential workers were getting are beginning to evaporate. Many grocery stores and retail giants like Kroger, Amazon, and Target offered an hourly wage increase, calling it hero pay. Many are going away at a time when some workers feel their risks are only increasing. It feels like, oh, you were heroes yesterday, but you're not today. Why does the company not think we're heroes anymore? The hazard is still out there. This essential worker label seems to have made an inadvertent admission. By deeming certain workers essential, what does that say about everyone else who can do their jobs over a Zoom call? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. What makes work essential? And is essential work undervalued? It's not something many people had spent time thinking about in a pre-pandemic world. So who better to talk to than David Graeber, the author of a book about the exact opposite? He's an anthropologist at the London School of Economics and also an anarchist. Now, heads up for our listeners, the title of the book gets straight to its point with some strong language. I'll name it here, and then we'll use an abbreviation. It's called Bullshit Jobs. So let's dive right into that. What is a BS job and why do you call it that? Ah, well, this is something I kind of, I discovered. Bear in mind, I do not come from a family of office workers. I come from a family of factory workers, actually. I'm also an anthropologist, and actually I'm kind of uh, <laughs> curious about such things. Tell me, oh, office worker, what do you actually do all day? And I just found myself over and over again meeting people and asking them, so I'm an anthropologist, what do you do? And they say, oh, nothing really. <laughs> and said, so, no, no, tell me what you actually do. And you realize after, particularly after a couple of drinks, sometimes you can get out of them that, They actually meant that literally. They actually do nothing. They might work 15 minutes, 20 minutes a day, maybe not that, maybe they're just around in case something happens. Or they actually do something which makes sense within the organization, but they feel the organization is pointless. So Graeber started wondering, how common is this? And he wrote an article about it for a website called Strike. He'd been asked to write something provocative, and he thought, I can do that. How about, why aren't we living the life of leisure we were promised back in the day? Because, you know, back in the 30s, people were saying, by 2020, we should all be, like, coasting along in four hours a day or 15 hours a week. And if you look at it, all the jobs they had back in the 30s, they have automated about half of them. So they don't exist anymore. So why aren't we relaxing? The standard explanation, Graeber says, is that societies chose consumer goods, instead of free time. 
so we're all building iPhones or serving each other matcha lattes. But actually, he says... That's not true either. I mean, because if you look at where the jobs have grown, it hasn't been in the service sector. People are actually cutting people's hair or serving people drinks. What's gone up is clerical, administrative, and supervisory work. That's just gone through the roof. And huge percentages of those people, it turns out, feel they're really not doing anything. Graeber had found an idea whose time had come. From there, it just took off. I didn't know if it was a considerable portion of the workforce. I suspected maybe 5, 10 percent down. And I wrote this piece and it just kind of exploded. And, and then it was like translated into 14 different languages. And even in the first couple of weeks, people would write to me and say, yes, it's true. I'm a corporate lawyer. Oh, wow. I contribute nothing to society. I'm miserable all the time. <laughs> Nobody knew my secret pain. <laughs> this kind of thing. These are sounding like confessionals. Yeah, yeah. I got a lot of that. I, I still do. People will just send me these three-page emails just describing just how completely pointless their job is and how they've never been able to tell anyone. An executive vice president for creative development, middle management, telemarketers, Five or six administrators where there used to be one. Consultants, lobbyists. Graeber says he's found no end to the pointless jobs. I really leave it up to the people doing the job to tell me. But what I would ask them is like, okay, if your job didn't exist, would it make any difference? Or might the world actually be a slightly better place? So Graeber started trying to categorize them. He created a Gmail account called do I have a BS job or what? And he posted it on Twitter saying, do you have a BS job? I want to know all about it. And then collectively, he and everyone who responded started coming up with categories. So let me see if I remember now what order they come in. They're flunkies, goons, box tickers, duct tapers, and taskmasters. We're not going to go through all of them, but there was one example of the box ticker category that I feel like many of us can relate to. A woman worked in a nursing home as the head of entertainment. Her job was not to entertain the residents, but to evaluate how they were being entertained with lots of paperwork. And basically doing this kept her so busy she'd never actually had any time to entertain anybody. So occasionally she'd like escape and basically play hooky on, on what was made to seem her real job and actually like play piano for people. And, and it was wonderful and lovely, but she always felt she was cheating when she did her actual job. And this is a phenomena that a lot of people feel People in teaching feel that way. Increasingly, nurses, you know, it's almost like an indulgence that they let you do the real job. Or they make you feel that's not your real job. The real job's the paperwork. Would you say that there has been a rise of BS jobs? If so, how did we get to that point? Well, obviously, organizations will tend to produce fat. Everybody knows that. The question is why nobody trims it. It defies the basic idea of what should be happening in capitalism. This is the sort of thing that should be happening in the Soviet Union, where they have a law of full employment, right? But markets are supposed to eliminate this problem. But clearly, they don't. Uh, I think one reason is political. The only thing that the left and the right seem to agree on is that more jobs is always good. As I always put it, if you see a bunch of people marching down the street protesting, they'll say money for 
jobs, not for war, money for jobs, not for cops, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. They always want jobs. And then meanwhile, there's the right wing guy saying, yeah, a bunch of hippies get a job. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody seems to think people should be in jobs. Well, I, what's so important about jobs? I'm not entirely sure. But um, there seems to be a consensus that everybody can agree at least on that. Graeber says this rise in useless jobs is linked to the decline of what's called Keynesian economics. Distribute money downwards with taxes and give that money to poor people and middle class people. It's named after British economist John Maynard Keynes, who argued that governments needed to push against the economic tide in order to lessen the impact of the boom and bust cycles that were inevitable in a free market economy. And then that money functions as a safety net and as a stimulus for people to buy goods and services, which then leads companies to hire more people to provide them. But that's changed. In lots of societies now, taxes are much, much lower than they were 40 years ago. Let the wealthy decide how to create jobs, the thinking goes, and the wealth trickles down. This is all a little simplified, of course, but those are the basic ideas. But the problem, of course, is essentially they're given huge wads of money. The consumer markets haven't increased that much. So they have to do something. So they say, okay, I'm under pressure to create jobs. I'll just hire more flunkies. I'll just have an in-house magazine. I'll create a really large compliance division or so forth and so on. Now you've taken that idea and you've expanded it to talk about BS economies. What do we mean when we say reopening an economy? What jobs are we talking about? Well, that's something that I've been really thinking about a lot recently because the phrase the economy has not been around forever. Like Shakespeare never heard of the economy. Voltaire never heard of the economy. And when they first started talking about the economy back in the 19th century, it was the way that we keep ourselves alive. That's how we keep ourselves fed and clothed and with basic human needs. Uh, But now the economy seems to mean something else because everybody said the economy shut down and we need to start up the economy. The economy is being pummeled. And I think basically economic activity brings prosperity and it increases and extends lives. This feels like a race against time. These stores are going to have to reopen or these jobs are just going to be lost forever. We need to get people back to work sooner rather than later because the consequences of this economic shutdown are serious and dire. But actually during lockdown, we were fed and sheltered and all those basic things which they used to think the economy were were, were being taken care of. So what is the economy? I mean, there's also restaurants and bowling alleys and everybody wants to get back to sort of life. But that's not the economy, that's life. In fact, we're being asked to die for the sake of the economy. And we don't even really know what it is. So I realized that in a way, the economy has become what might be termed the BS sector. It's all those people that I was writing about in my book on the subject, the people who wrote to me long descriptions of just how pointless they felt their jobs actually were. I asked him why there's such pressure to get these kinds of employees working again, especially when, as he says, they'd be risking their lives in a pandemic. But he said he thought when people talk about getting the economy going again, they're talking about financial markets, Wall Street, and collecting on debt, 
Debt from students, debt from homeowners, medical debt, you name it. Most of the profits and financial markets now are not based in manufacturing or even selling anything. Basically, what finance is is other people's debts and manipulating and trading and betting on other people's debts. Well, that is what generates the BS jobs. So I want to switch to the opposite of BS jobs, which are the essential jobs. What are essential jobs? Well, I mean, it's not my term, but what we've discovered is that there are certain jobs where you really can't live without, and there's other ones you can. Those essential jobs did receive greater benefits during the pandemic. Some workers got a one-time bonus, a bump in hourly pay, or a special stipend. Others got paid sick leave for the first time or got more of it. But big chains across the U.S. are starting to end that pay. Some have already ended it. Essential workers are still wearing protective gear, but it seems the return to normal, or at least a normal paycheck, might be imminent. And people suddenly started noticing the disparity a little bit during the lockdown that well, the way I put it is there is a paradox in that the, the more obviously your work benefits other people, the less they pay you. Why can't more of these employees and these essential jobs, due to the essential nature of their work, then advocate for better pay? Why doesn't it work? I mean, because we know they're trying. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. But it, in a way, it's like the feminist care strike paradox. Of course, the jobs that are the most useful are paid the least, but if you just look at the work that's most useful, a lot of it isn't paid at all, right? A lot of women's work was just expected to be done. Every mother and father everywhere, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think it's past 50% at this point here in the UK that like more than half of the value created in the economy is from non-paid labor. And how do those guys go on strike? Well, it, think about it. You can't strike by like refusing to feed your baby. And there is a sense in which I think some jobs are just so necessary and it would be so disastrous not to do it that you just can't not do it. So touching on politics a little bit here, many liberal democracies have struggled with a response to this pandemic for people, especially those who have lost their jobs. In the U.S., the benefits have been tied up with bureaucratic red tape. That's something you talk about. And the most direct relief came in the form of about $1,200 in a check. Why do you think it is that liberal political parties have struggled with what kind of economic relief to give people? It's a really interesting question. I've been thinking about the morality of debt for many years because I really think the morality of debt and the morality of work are the two things kind of holding the system together. Nobody thinks the system is, is that great, but they do think... It, it would be hard to imagine an alternative because there's been this kind of war on the human imagination for years. And also, they really do believe that a person who doesn't pay their debts is a deadbeat. Rich people don't think this, right? I mean, Donald Trump, how many times has that guy gone bankrupt? But people who are not rich tend to really take this seriously. Graeber said, even in situations where it might make sense to cancel debt or reduce it, like by bailing people out of bad mortgages during the 2008 recession, lawmakers were reluctant to do it directly. Well, it was the liberals, centrist liberals, who actually said, no, I think that would set a bad precedent that mortgages and debts can be just forgiven. Because, you know, if they had just paid the mortgages, that would have bailed out the banks indirectly. But instead, they chose to bail out the banks directly and not 
let the mortgage people off the hook. And they wanted debt to seem like it's a sacred thing. That's their problem. You know, they don't want you to know they can just whisk money into existence. That spending is something we're seeing repeat as the U.S. Congress passes one stimulus bill after another. If they cancel the debts, they want to pretend somebody paid for it. If they make up money, they want you to think it came from somewhere. It's very important to them because the moment people figure out that these debts are just made up, I mean, something between 30 and 50 percent of your income is sucked away every month on the basis of debt. If that's not sacred, if that's something they made up, well, who's going to do it? I mean, the rebellions historically have usually occurred more about debt than anything else, and, and, and we're set up for an incredible upheaval if people figure that out. So in a post-pandemic world, don't know that we're in that yet, but as we inch towards that, hopefully, are we also headed for a devaluation of BS jobs? Because from the benefits that are going away, it doesn't seem like we're going to be reevaluating essential work. Mm. But what's missing to get us there? I think what's really important is to get away from this notion of the economy. I mean, we have to realize that the economy is basically a vanity project for a bunch of very powerful people who are already as rich as anybody could possibly want to be. And they're just sort of playing games to sort of satisfy their own narcissism. You know, I am the executive vice president with like 347 people in my division and you only have 259. You know, I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's pointless. And, and they're literally destroying the planet. And you think of all the people who are driving to work, who could be working from home and all the carbon that produces, the glittering office towers that don't need to exist. I mean, it's a large chunk of what's currently driving us to climate catastrophe. So I think that we've had a wake-up call in this, you know, if I were a benevolent deity and I wanted to send a really, really sharp message that people are on the wrong course, Mm. I guess this might be the kind of thing I might try. And I saw a survey that said, they asked people here in the UK whether they wanted to go back to the way things were right before the pandemic. And only 9% said yes. Graeber says changing our economy, our society, would be hard. But people could get a big part of the way there without limiting their enjoyment of life. Actually, they would increase it by simply getting rid of the BS jobs or the BS elements of real jobs. That's the thing. We have this theology of work, right? So we feel that if there's a crisis, we have to work even more. Oh my God, work is very important. We can not work. Actually, we're in a bizarre situation where if we want to save the world, stop working so much. Working less is really important. It'll actually be better for everyone. So you've called this kind of a wake-up moment for society. Do you think it's likely that we will see some of the mass action that we have seen again? Will we say, what are we doing to other crises coming up? Well, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I often say that ideology no longer works by trying to convince people that the system is fair. It works by trying to convince people that everyone else thinks the system is fair. It might happen that they'll convince everyone that everyone else wants to put things back the way it was. But I don't think anyone really does. And unless governments are very, very clever about how they handle the economic shockwaves, I think that the the potential for unrest and and mass mobilization demanding a change of course is, is enormous. It's unprecedented. 
As a final question, you look at the world in such a different way at some ordinary things that are part of our lives. And this struck me as I'm reading your work and I think, yes, I agree. I just never would have synthesized it like this. Why do you think you notice these things that are so normal and perhaps unnoticed by everyone else? Well, I think I come from an unusual background. I come from a family of genuine working class revolutionaries, you know, and uh, my parents had me late in life. My father fought in the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and he uh, was in Barcelona when it was under anarchist control. And their solution to reorganizing work after the revolution was they simply fired all the white collar workers and discovered, well, there's a few things you actually have to do, but not that many. And you can get somebody on rotation to do that pretty much um, in an hour a day. So I grew up in a family where anarchism wasn't seen as, as crazy. And that's important because most people don't think anarchism is a bad idea. They just think it's insane, right? <laughs> Obviously that would never work. But if it can work, well, why not do it? So in, in that way, I'm heir to a certain tradition. And you could say the ultimate inspiration for the BS Jobs Insight comes from that. As an anthropologist, I'm aware of human possibilities. And the way they make you feel that things are impossible is by making you feel that human possibility is very limited, right? You know, there's so many people who, who will say, haven't we always been like this? Well, no, we haven't actually. David Graeber, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. I've had a great time. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Alexandra Locke with Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, Nay Alvarez, and me, Malika Pilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is the engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Bushier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Nika Dubrovsky and Mary Kelly Gardner. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>